0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the UCSF Osher Mini Medical School for the Public. My name is Shelley Adler, and I am the Interim Director and the Director of Education for the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. Today we're starting a six-session series on mindfulness entitled Integrative Medicine and Mindfulness from the Monastery to Modern Medical Practice. I'm going to be facilitating the series with my friend and colleague, Dr. Hecht, who I'm going to say a few more words about in a moment because he's our initial speaker as well. Uh, The... Osher Center was established in 1997 and quickly became one of the premier academic health centers focused on uh, research, education, and clinical care related to integrative medicine. Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear from some of our wonderful clinicians, educators, and researchers who all have uh, different approaches to working with and understanding mindfulness and its impact on people's lives. Now, each of our speakers is going to talk about mindfulness from a different perspective, and I'm not going to go into my own personal definition now. I'll leave that to Dr. Hecht and, uh, and our other uh, presenters. But I do want to, because I am a medical educator, just give you a few of the objectives that we have for the next few weeks so you understand what we're going to be exploring so in addition to learning about how people think of mindfulness from different traditions and different fields, you'll also learn how mindfulness can influence health, uh, what the research shows about the practice of mindfulness, uh, its effects on the body, and, um, and its effects in a broader way uh, on personal psychology, on your social interactions, on your well-being. You'll also hear about how mindfulness can affect your stress, uh, uh, enhance resilience. You'll learn about mindfulness and attention, uh, how you can become more aware of emotions, enhance your focus, and its influence on compassion and empathy. What's interesting about this series is we're not only looking at the effect of mindfulness on adults, but we're actually going to look at the influence of mindfulness on childbirth, parenting, all the way through the life course. And the last thing I want to emphasize is that part of our goal is to enable you to cultivate... Uh, your own understanding and perhaps practice of mindfulness. So each of these sessions over the next six weeks will have some form of an experiential exercise, so some taste of how you yourself can incorporate mindfulness into your understanding of this practice. Now let me go ahead and, and introduce Dr. Hecht. Uh, Rick Hecht is the research director at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, and he's a professor of medicine here at UCSF. He's trained in general internal medicine and HIV medicine, and he received additional training in clinical research methods during a fellowship in clinical epidemiology here at UCSF as well. Following that fellowship... Dr. Hecht developed a multidisciplinary research program investigating early uh, primary HIV infection. And this work ended up building one of the world's largest and most productive cohort studies of early HIV uh, infection. It's called the Options Project. Since 2002, Dr. Hecht has been involved at the Osher Center in a number of different ways. Uh, In particular, he's built a truly wonderful research program that focuses on mind-body medicine uh, and interventions, particularly uh, meditation and yoga, using what we call a psychoneuroimmunology approach, or PNI, if you don't have a lot of time. Uh, And he uses uh, this to study the effects of these practices on the endocrine, metabolic, and immune systems. He's led multiple NIH grants studying the effects of meditation and yoga on health, and he also plays a key role at the Osher Center in mentoring uh, research fellows and junior faculty in research methods. Clearly the best person to launch this series. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Hecht..
1: Thanks very much, Shelley. Before I really get started with a talk um, I want to actually ask you all a couple more questions. I know Shelley asked about how many of you have been at an Osher Mini Medical School uh, course before, and it looks like a lot of you have. Um, it would be helpful for me to know how many of you have ever done any kind of meditation practice. Can, okay. So almost all of you. Great. Um, how many of you have a regular meditation practice, like you do something, however you define regular. Okay. A few of you. Okay. Um, Well, this may be a little different than what you would do in most OSHA Mini Medical Center courses, but because we are really talking about something, meditation, that is not just something to me that you talk about or study, but actually something that you practice and experience, I actually want to start. We're going to do something, like Shelley said, that's kind of experiential in each of these courses. I actually want to start with that. Um, but to really get us grounded in what we're talking about and to also just help everyone settle down, really arrive here and uh, be here for the rest of the, the evening. So what I want to invite you to do, and if you don't feel comfortable or don't want to do this, you're fine If doing whatever you want as long as it's quiet and not distracting other people too much. Um, But I'd invite you just to take a moment to settle in. If you want to, just let your eyes close for a minute. If you want to keep your eyes open, though, that's okay. And I'd just invite you to take a moment and begin to arrive in this space. And I invite you first to just begin to be aware of your body here in this space. You might start by noticing your feet on the ground. And just notice how your feet feel on the ground, how that contact feels, how the bottom of your feet feels, how the top of your feet feels. And you might let your awareness go to other places where you're contacting your chair. Feel how it feels sitting in the chair, the pressure on your legs. Notice your seat in the chair, your back against the chair. you might take a moment just to check in with your whole body. Notice if you can, are there any places where you're holding tension? How are your shoulders? A lot of us have been coming here, rushing through different things in the day, maybe working on a computer, holding your arm. Just notice... Any of the feelings from what you're bringing in here from the day in your body. You might let your awareness go to your face. We hold a lot of our feelings in the face. You might notice the muscles around the eyes, around the mouth. Are they holding any tension? There's nothing you need to do to change it. Just notice it. Next, I'd invite you to bring your awareness to your breath. You might notice your breath going in and out. Notice how it feels as it fills your lungs. How it feels as it flows out. And again, there's nothing you need to do to change it, to make it happen. Just notice your breath going in and out. Next, I'd invite you to notice if you have any feeling in your body now, any emotion, again, that you're bringing from the day or that you feel right now. How does that feel in your body? And again, there's nothing you need to do to change it. Just notice how that feels. And I invite you to bring your attention back to your breath and just notice how it feels now flowing in and out. In a moment, I'll invite you to come back to this room, but you might just notice how your body feels now at the end of this brief pause. Thanks, everyone. So hopefully now you're really ready for this course. Um, what I'm going to be talking about today is really an overview, partly of the area of research, um, how, you know, what research looks like in general on meditation. Um, but I'm going to really start by giving you a framework, because this is mini medical school, to really think about how these kinds of interventions might work when we talk about health. Now, when we're talking about this whole field, this is one of the things I really think about, is this is not something that's just uh, in the scientific world. It's very much in the lay world. Um, And there are a lot of claims about where we're at with the science of meditation. This is a Time magazine from a few years ago that some of you may have seen. And one of the questions I'm going to be asking is, um, does the science where we're at right now, does it live up to the hype? How well do we really understand the science behind what meditation does? The first thing I want to talk about here, again, is talking about how something like meditation, which is really a mental state, how could that really affect your health? This is an overall topic, really, in mind-body medicine in general. It's an area that I am fascinated about, I think has um, really got all these different amazing connections to think about. And I hope one of the things that you'll get out of this is a curiosity and interest in how these connections between your mind and your body might really work. So I want to just see if people can... Yeah, no, it's supposed to be meditation.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. So, the yeah, the question is, which ways meditation, hopefully I didn't misspell it, but yes, thanks, um, but it is meditation impacts physical health, so... Um, I'm using meditation as kind of a, a model of something that is a mental state. How does that affect your body and your physical health? So, I want to see if people could call out any you know suggestions. What are the pathways? What would connect what's going on in your mind with your physical health? Any, yeah. Uh, on the immune system. Okay, so effects on the immune system. Great. Any. And. Endorphins, okay. Anything? Sympathetic and parasympathetic. Okay, so the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Any other ideas? Yeah. Cortisol. Great, cortisol. Okay, so these are great. Okay, so we're going to start covering some of these. So the one I want to start with is actually cortisol and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, or um, as Sally would say, if you're trying to make it quick, the HPA axis. So um, how does the HPA axis work? So the HPA axis really starts in the brain, and there are all these connections from the more conscious parts of the brain, the cortex, that go into the hypothalamus. Those signals get integrated there, and they go into uh, the hypothalamus to influence the release of corticotropin-releasing hormone, um, CRH, That then stimulates something else, which is adrenocorticotropic hormone, ACTH. And that gets secreted by the anterior pituitary and goes into the bloodstream where it signals in the adrenal gland to make more cortisol. So this system starts at the brain, it goes into the adrenal gland, and it controls the release of cortisol. So the next question is, what does cortisol do? Cortisol has many different effects on your body. These are just actually a few of them. So um, one of the examples is that it decreases uh, bone formation. So if you get enough cortisol, it actually can weaken your bones. In the liver, it stimulates release of glucose. In the muscle, it decreases amino acid uptake, in the pancreas, it has effects that counteract the effects of insulin. So insulin drops down glucose, um, liver the cortisol increases it and antagonizes the effects of insulin. And finally, it actually has some pretty complicated effects on fat tissue. Initially, it promotes the breakdown of fat. It also, ultimately, over time, can promote deposition of fat in different places. So there's all these effects on these different organs. There's also, as people mentioned, there's very profound effects on the immune system. So anyone who is working in medicine, and most of us, even outside medicine, are familiar with this concept that steroids, and usually when we're talking about here, I'm talking about steroids that are related to cortisol. They have very potent anti-inflammatory effects. They're used all the time in medicine because of that. Um, and they affect all these different, these are different kinds of immune cells in fairly complex ways. The overall effect, particularly in high doses, is to decrease inflammatory responses. But as just a note on how complex this is, this is a macrophage here, so a very key part of the immune system. And you can see here that low doses of cortisol actually increase the activity of macrophages, high doses decrease. And that's actually true for some of the other cells. You need enough cortisol to get some of these cells really mobilized, but higher levels have the opposite effect and start to downregulate those cells, make them less active. So why is this important? I'm going to go into, because um, secondary immunology is one of the things I think is also not only really important here, but I think is fascinating, Um, I'm going to go a little bit into the immune system and how this relates to this whole pathway. So as background on this, one of the key things to really think about is inflammatory responses. All of us have experienced this, right? You get a cut, it gets infected, your immune system starts mobilizing. So what happens? You've got all these cells here that are going to travel into this area, they come out of the blood vessels in response to different immune signals in this tissue that say something is wrong, you need to get immune cells here quick, they come in and start attacking these bacteria, okay, as part of that you get a whole inflammatory response, that's what you feel when you get a splinter or you get an infected cut, and that is critical to the healing process in your body's defenses, So this whole process, this immune response, is absolutely critical in our body's defenses. And as one kind of paradigm for what happens if you don't have an effective immune system that can mount these inflammatory responses, AIDS is really one of the models that I think about. I've worked with people with AIDS for years and got to see the devastation of what happens when your immune system is not working properly and you can't mount these responses. And just as a note, not only are there infections, but you're more vulnerable to different cancers. This is Kaposi's sarcoma a form of cancer on the skin. So you're vulnerable not only to infections, but other diseases, including things like cancer. On the other hand, um, as I think we might easily recognize, these defense systems come with a price, and they come with a risk and danger. Um, When you start having essentially a battle where your body is the battleground, you have to be very careful about these responses that um, set off these inflammatory responses. So what are some of the kind of downsides to these immune responses when they're overly active. So these are five A's here. I could go on, except I couldn't come up with more A's. But, um, but some of the important ones are autoimmune diseases, things like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, allergies, um, something I think all of us have experienced in different ways. Um, arteriosclerosis, in many ways, is really an inflammatory um, process that happens in our blood vessels, Um, Aching and pain also is often an inflammatory process. And inflammation is really a key component of the aging process. Many people think that it's it's really a central piece of what happens in the aging process. So all of these are things that can happen with an overactive immune system. So putting this all together... Balance in the immune system is absolutely critical. You want the right response when it's necessary. You don't want too much response. And when you don't need it, it needs to get turned off. And how does that happen? That's a really complex process that our bodies are handling all the time. But some of the key regulatory systems are part of what we are just talking about now. So the HPA access is one arm of that regulatory system that makes sure that the immune system doesn't get out-of-hand mount inflammatory responses when we don't want them. Okay, so while we're talking about the HPA axis, I want to start to connect it a little bit more to what happens in our minds. So a question for all of you, so what, what are the effects of stress on the HPA axis? Do people know, someone want to call this out? What happens? when we get stressed? So cortisol goes up. It's sometimes called the stress hormone because in response to stress, our cortisol levels go up. Now, one way to look at this I'm going to tell you about here, and this is where we're going to move a little bit into experimental models. I'm going to tell you about this because it's one of the experimental models that we use to actually get stress responses and Affect people's cortisol. So, this is called the Trier social stress test. It's named after Trier, Germany, where people developed this. Um, They may have had slightly sadistic tendencies when you understand how this works. So, this is what it looks like if you are coming in for a Trier social stress test. So, these are two observers here. And what you've been told to do first, you come in and you rest for 10 minutes. Then you're given the instructions. You don't know exactly what's going to happen when we do this, and we, we do this in a bunch of the studies I do. Um, you know that there's you're going to have some kind of stress experiment, but I'm going to tell you what really happens here, so none of you are going to be able to participate in these studies. Um, so you get the instructions right before this is going to happen, and the instruction is it can vary a little bit, but a typical thing is going to be, We want you to imagine that you are coming for a job interview for a job you really want. You've got five minutes, prepare your talk, and you're gonna deliver it for five minutes and we want a really great talk that's gonna convince this audience to hire you at the end of it. So then you go ahead and you get prepared and you do your speech for five minutes. And this is your audience. The thing you don't know is your audience has been instructed to give you no positive nonverbal feedback. <laughs> They're not going to totally scowl or something like that, but they just look like this. If you can see, kind of stony-faced... Um, the thing sometimes my wife complains I look like sometimes when I'm <laughs> distracted and not thinking about enough about what she's saying. But... Um, They don't give any kind of response. It turns out, as social animals, at least most of us, are very keyed in, especially in this kind of circumstance where you're giving a talk. You want to make sure it's connecting with your audience and that people are responding, but they just sit there and just are completely blank. Um, So... You do that for five minutes, and then if if that hasn't stressed you enough, and some some people are really good at doing things like this, spontaneously giving a job talk, um, then we switch to the math task. (laughs) And that tends to get even some of the people who do just sail through the job talk. So in the math task, what they are asked to do, so imagine this, you're told... I want you to count backward from 1,000 by 13 as quickly as you can. (laughs) The experimenters here have a list in front of them of all the right answers. And as soon as you get a wrong answer, they say, stony-faced, I'm sorry, that's wrong, start over again. (laughs) So people have to keep doing this um, for, for five minutes. So this reliably gets a stress response for, for at least most people. Um, and what does this look like? So here is what this looks like in an uh, experiment with a, the Trier social stress test. So what you're going to see here first in this blue line, for this is time here, this is level. So the blue line shows the, the ACTH level. So these are comi- this is coming from from the, the brain, and it's signaling, it's going to signal to the adrenal gland that it should make more cortisol. So it goes up very quickly, within a minute or two. A little, there's a little time lag, but behind that, the cortisol levels rise here. So they go way up for most people during this kind of experience, and gradually it takes about an hour to come down for a typical person after this kind of experience. So I'm asking you two things. Please don't stay, just stay stony-faced there. Um, but also just think about that. this is a kind of what happens during our daily life when we hit a, a stressful situation. You're going to get these kinds of hormonal responses. So the next question is, what does this really matter? What they, do, Does all this stuff like what I'm showing you with cortisol and so on, In real life, does this really matter in our immune systems? To answer that question, I'm going to go into another question, which is, what's the connection between these three pretty disparate pictures? So I'm going to tell you a little bit about this. This is a really fascinating model. Um, It's one that's been developed by Sheldon Cohen, who is a psychologist at Carnegie Mellon, who's done just amazing work in this field and he's done a series of experiments where he gets people for a few days to go either to a apartment or um, now some of the time they're using hotels motels for these experiments where they rent rooms for a few days and they expose people to this anyone know what that is that's a yeah, cold virus so this is a rhinovirus. so He is experimentally exposing volunteers. These are a lot of poor college students in part, but um, can you think of it? Like, do you want to spend five days in a hotel getting a cold um, while we poke you and draw blood and give you questionnaires? Um, So they expose them to a a, a set dose of, of rhinovirus and watch what happens. And he's done a whole series of studies, but this is one of the really classic ones. This was published in New England Journal in 1991. So I'm going to walk you through what this tells us. So this, on this axis here, the x-axis, this is a psychological stress index. So they gave people questionnaires and measured their level of stress when they were going through these experiments. And this is the low level of stress going up to a high level. What they're looking at here is the proportion of subjects with cold infections. And this is not just like, did you feel like you had a cold? This is, they are doing nasal swabs and doing cultures of the virus to see if they can actually culture virus from these people. And if you look here, there's a dose response relationship. More stress more chance that you're actually going to get infected with a cold virus. So the overall message here is, in our normal life, some of the kinds of levels of stress that we experience may affect our susceptibility to different things that we get exposed to every day, like the cold virus. So we've been talking so far about the HPA axis. I'm going to go through another piece of the, the... our, our physiology that may be really important here also. And um, I know someone raised this earlier, the autonomic nervous system. And with that, um, I'm talking about both the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. So here's just an overview of how this is working. So similar to the HPA axis, there are signals that are coming from our cerebral cortex. So these are things we're aware of, conscious thoughts. That part of the brain has connections with the limbic system. So the limbic system is, it's been called our more primitive brain, but it really has all these different uh, um, emotional signals are are really happening in the limbic system here. Some of them we're aware of, some of them are really below the level where we're usually very aware of them. And the limbic system has connections with the hypothalamus, which is then regulating not only the pituitary, but also um, other parts of the brain, the, the brain stem, the reticular formation. And then that is setting signals that are going down through the spinal cord into both the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. So what are those signals doing? So... I'm going to walk you through a little bit of that. So the sympathetic nervous system here is what really runs what we often refer to as the fight or flight responses. So when we feel in danger or at risk, these really get activated. But even if we're doing something a little less stressful, like we're exercising or something like that, This system gets turned on, and it has a whole lot of effects on your body, and it does these very, very quickly, within seconds. So an example is that it accelerates your heart rate. It also inhibits digestive activity, so your gut stops working as much. Your blood is getting directed out of the gut and out to your muscles. Um, So it has all these different kinds of effects here, In contrast, the kind of partner system to the sympathetic nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system. So this is not an exact mirror, but it's pretty close. It's often referred to as the um, rest and digest system in contrast to the fight or flight. And uh, as an example here of some of the kind of opposite effects it has to the sympathetic nervous system, it slows down your heart rate. It stimulates digestive activity. Um, So this is what you want if you're resting and you're, for example, digesting a meal. So like the HPA axis, it turns out this system also has a lot of influences on the immune system. And these have not been appreciated as much as the HPA axis. The HPA axis, I think, is obvious because, for example, in medicine we use Medicines that are like cortisol all the time um, that make it really obvious that there's a connection, but it turns out there's very profound connections with the immune system, with the autonomic nervous system as well. How does that happen? Well, one of the ways it happens is that there are receptors in all these immune cells that actually respond to neurotransmitters that are being released by the autonomic nervous system. And there's receptors for both signals that are coming from the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. As one example of how this works and some of the connections with our actually mental state, um, there's been some very interesting experiments that were done by Steve Cole, who is at UCLA. So um, what is this? So this is a slice of a lymph node from a rhesus macaque. This is essentially a, a kind of monkey. And what they're looking at here in the lymph node, all these green dots, these are being stained for sympathetic nervous system innervation. So everywhere you see a green dot, that means there's a nerve coming in from the sympathetic nervous system. So you can see there's dots all over this lymph node. So they're going into this lymph node to release uh, substances they are called catecholamines, that starts signaling to cells in the lymph node itself. As one example of how our social condition actually affects our immune system, um, what Steve Cole and and his group did is, in this condition here, these rhesus macaques were kept mainly in isolation. So these were in normal, stable social groupings. These were in isolation for the most part in unstable social settings, so they had very brief interactions with other rhesus macaques. So, what is it? What what is the difference here? Anyone want to call it out? Should hopefully be able to see it from back there. So, there's a lot more innervation. So, you see many more green dots here. So. What that is telling us is this is not even just a temporary thing that you get a response for one or two minutes. These conditions actually change the whole, essentially, architecture of the lymph node, and it changes the amount of connections and increases the amount of sympathetic nerve fibers that are going into the lymph node here. So this means that this rhesus macaque is going to be more sensitive to these fight-or-flight responses. Um, and it may be a little easy, harder for that kind of animal to actually essentially downregulate or decrease the effects of stress on the immune system. So what this means, that's a, a great question. So the question is, um, is the example on the right more inflamed? So it's not more inflamed now, but it turns out that the responses that are Generated from the the sympathetic nervous system, which we're staining for here, they tend to be inflammatory responses. The parasympathetic nervous system tends to decrease inflammation. So, the kind of logical conclusion here is that when you start to increase the sympathetic nervous system innervation and you turn on the sympathetic nervous system, it's easier to turn on these these inflammatory responses. So. There's one other kind of connection here that I think is important that we didn't hear as much, and it's one of the things I I think a lot about as a physician, and that is um, there's a real connection between people's mental state and their health behaviors. So this is another pathway that potentially can connect interventions like mindfulness, other forms of meditation to our health, is what the effect is on our health behavior. I'm going to give you one example here, and this is a really fascinating study. This is work done um, by Mary Woolley, who is a a colleague here at UCSF, um, who I did some of my fellowship training with years ago. And what Mary was looking at was this overall question, which is there is a whole bunch of data that says that people with heart disease die faster if they're depressed, the question she tried to ask in the heart and soul study was, how does that happen? What what connects depression with a risk of dying from heart disease? And she looked at a whole set of different connections. The one that really looked the strongest actually had to do with health behavior, and that's what this graph is showing here. So in dark gray here, these are the people who are depressed here, and it shows how many people are not taking their medicine as prescribed? So if you look here, it's about 14% of patients here um, who are just not taking their medicine as prescribed if they're depressed, versus about 5% if they're not depressed. So that's a big difference, right? To the extent that the medicines we have actually work, and in many cases, believe it or not, they actually do work, and we're giving people things that they need to take. If you're depressed, you're not taking your medicine often as well as if you aren't depressed. And this applies not just to things like taking your medicine, which is, in a sense, not totally easy, but it's it's relatively easy compared to, let's say, I tell my patient, you need to get out and exercise more. That really takes motivation and discipline. You t- t- work with a depressed patient, and you tell them you really need to get out there and exercise more, What happened? I can tell you it is a real challenge. It's a challenge in people who are not depressed. It is really a challenge in people who are depressed. So all these different health behaviors get affected by your mood. So this is, again, another connection by which some kind of mind-body intervention, if it affects your mood and your mental state, may affect your behaviors in ways that impact on your health. So I just want to summarize what we've gone through so far. So we've really been trying to talk about these pathways that might connect the mind to the body in terms of health. What connects our mental state with what's going on in our body in ways that are really relevant for our health? So some of those connections, and this is not exhaustive, but these are some of the really key pathways that we think about. The HPA axis, the autonomic nervous system, and health behavior. So I hope I've also convinced you that these pathways actually are really relevant for health outcomes. These are not just kind of theoretical models that we like to think about, but there's real data that says these are connected to our health. And finally, one of the other take-home messages here is that these systems, both the neuroendocrine system and the immune system, they're best when they're in balance, right? We want enough response, but not too much response. So these are the pathways, but what do these pathways really have to do with meditation? Are these pathways that we're really impacting with meditation? That's what I want to go through next. But before I really dive into that, um, I'm finally going to talk about what mindfulness is, which Shelley charged me with doing earlier. And I'm not really going to give you my definition. I'm going to steal one from John Kabat-Zinn, which... How many people have heard John Kabat Zinn's name? I see a bunch of hands. So, John Kabat Zinn developed something called mindfulness based stress reduction. And what he really did is take these practices that, as the title for this whole course um, implies, they came from Buddhist practices. They're practiced by monks and monasteries. They've been brought to the West. John Kabat Zinn has been a pioneer in really taking them and making them into a more secular uh, practice that can be taught and delivered in a lot of medical settings. So he worked initially at doing this at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, developed this whole program, mindfulness-based stress reduction that's gotten disseminated throughout the world and some of the kinds of things I'm talking about really owe a huge debt to the kind of work that he and other colleagues did to really develop this as a, a practice that we're using in healthcare settings. So, how did how did he define mindfulness? So, this is one of his definitions: moment to moment, non-judgmental awareness of one's experience cultivated by paying attention. So, what that means as a practice, what I was doing in the very beginning, you might remember our first five minutes. That's a form of mindfulness meditation. It's an example, so it involves paying attention, for example, to your breath, paying attention to your body, paying attention to how you're feeling in a non judgmental way. Um, So that's my definition, at least that I'm going to use here, of mindfulness. There's a huge debate in the field, even though I've used this definition, about what this really means. And this is in some ways a simplification because there are many dimensions to what we're talking about with mindfulness. I'm not going to get into all of that now. I think some of our other speakers may get into that more. But this is at least an initial working definition of what I'm talking about. In some of the data I'm going to show you next, another form of meditation is also um, included, and I want to comment on that, and that is mantra meditation. So that's related in some ways to mindfulness meditation. The difference is that it involves concentration on a sound or mantra or phrase. And the kind of example that a lot of us in the West are familiar with is transcendental meditation. But this really comes from practices that um, have been done for hundreds of years in, in really Hindu and Buddhist traditions. So I'm finally going to get to some data here on the research on meditation. And um, I, I want to start by the question, is there really an effect that we can show from in our research studies of these meditation practices on mental states. So um, this comes from, I think, one of the the really important papers in the field. This is a pretty recent paper. This is from Goyle et al. It was published in 2014, and it is a meta-analysis. So I'm going to go through that. How many people are familiar with the term meta-analysis? Is that a familiar term? Okay, great. So a lot of you, but not all of you. So what this means is a meta-analysis takes data from every study they can find that's been published that meets certain criteria, usually criteria for quality of the study and for the type of study. So here they were looking at studies that were looking at meditation. Either they broke it down, mindfulness or mantra meditation, and they looked at them separately. And they combined that data using uh, special statistical techniques that, kind of put all this data together, account for the number of people in each study and the strength of the result. So over here on the right-hand side of this figure is one of the key things to look at, and I want to walk you through it so you understand what it means. So it is giving what is called Cohen's D. This is a measure of what we call effect size, and it can range from negative 1 to 1, what those numbers mean is if it's zero, this is giving a comparison between the meditation groups and a comparison control group. If, it, the, if the difference is zero, it means essentially the effect is no different than the control group. If the effect is negative one, which is that's the maximum effect you can expect, that's a decrease in some of these conditions like anxiety. And in the opposite direction here, a positive uh, number would mean that there's an increase. So all, most of these are ones that you want to decrease here. So what do the numbers look like? What you're looking for here is two things. So the dot here is the point estimate. That's if you average all these studies together, what's the effect? The bars on either side are what we call the 95% confidence interval. So those are the ranges at which our data might be consistent. We're not, you know, we have uh, an estimate, but there's a range of data that could be compatible with what we're seeing from all these studies. The narrower those bars are, the more precise our estimate is of the effect, and what you're looking for is bars that don't extend over zero. If they don't extend over zero, that means there's a significant difference here with the control group. So I'm going to highlight a number of ones here where there's real differences from the control group. And those are anxiety, depression, negative affect, and pain. And you might notice for some of these, for example, for anxiety, there is a significant decrease for mindfulness meditation studies. There's not for mantra meditation um, so there's some differences here. But overall, they show a number of different conditions in which there are significant improvements. There's some things, though, where there's question marks here. So one of them I would really highlight is stress, where we would expect, this is called mindfulness-based stress reduction, right? So we would expect that there really clearly be a decrease. Well, there is a decrease, if you look over here, but it's not statistically significant. It still crosses that the zero line. So that leaves a little bit of question mark here. It's not saying for sure there's not an effect. It's saying it looks like there might be an effect, but within all the data we have, it's not. we're not 100% sure. So this is where I think... This, the data stands when we're grouping all, you know, all all the really well done studies that have been done together. And this was, I will tell you, a little bit of a surprise to people in the meditation research world. Um, and there's been a fair amount of controversy about it. I actually think it was well done. It's a little bit of a cautionary tale, though, because I think a lot of us have overestimated how effective these kind of interventions are for some of the conditions we're looking at here, like stress. So there's kind of two messages here. One is, yes, there's good data that some of these conditions really improve, but if you think that this is just a slam dunk, fixes everything that's wrong with you, that's not quite so clear. Okay, so I'm going to give you one more example here. Yeah. Oh great great question. So um, yeah, this is something I'm afraid I think about all the time and, and I'm not really thinking that this. this is not normal English. So negative affect is actually kinda of negative mood or it's it's very similar to depression, but it's a little bit different in that it's really looking at whether your your mood has more negative qualities overall. It's particularly contrasted with positive affect, and the the really interesting thing here is that you can have positive affect even at the same time that you're having negative affect. And the example this uh, comes from from Judy Moskowitz and, and Susan Folkman, who've been key people at the Osher Center who've worked with us a lot. Is they did a study of. Um, Gay men who had partners who were dying of AIDS, a very difficult, stressful condition in which there was a fair amount of negative mood, but many of those people reported that at different points during the day, they had moments that were really positive and meaningful to them, and they were also experiencing positive affect at the same time. So that's what this is about, and you want more, ideally, positive affect, and there's evidence that it may be increased with meditation but it's not again this is where there's some uncertainty and and the negative affect again is going to be similar to but not identical to depression and you want to decrease that yeah so great question so what what would be different about mindfulness versus mantra meditation so um anyone who's familiar with this any any thoughts on this what would be different between them Okay, so I'm going to take a stab at this. So one of the things that's different, so mantra meditation is what is really called a concentration form of meditation. And it involves really just concentrating on a mantra, repeating it to yourself over and over again. It's something where you're kind of calming your thoughts down, for example. You're not ruminating about things, but you're just focused on this one sound. What's different in mindfulness, particularly how it's implemented in things like mindfulness-based stress reduction, I did a little bit of this at the beginning. It often involves things, for example, where you're turning some of your attention toward your emotional state, noticing your emotions, noticing how you feel in your body, how those emotions might feel in your body. And it involves more work with what I would call emotion regulation, noticing those emotions, being aware of them, and working with them. That is really actually different than what is usually done in mantra meditation. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that these findings are different. It's one of the things that I would have hypothesized here. It's one of the reasons in some of the studies where we use mindfulness meditation we're specifically aiming to get some of those emotion regulation effects, not just the what's been called the relaxation response that may be, el, may be elicited from mantra meditation. Great question. So I have to go back and check. So how many people would be in all these studies? So this is at least several thousand people. I'd have to double check that to make sure I'm telling you the right thing. And it varies a little bit because not all these studies measured the same thing, so they're Putting in as much data as they can, but in some cases some of these studies don 't have the same measures in them, um, but this is at least if uh, actually i 'm sorry now that i 'm saying this the numbers are right here so um, so this here, so the anxiety, for example, this has six hundred and forty seven people, and the mantra meditation has two hundred and thirty seven Um, Some of them have higher numbers here, um, if I remember. So the negative affect, this has 1,140 people in it. Yeah. One more question, then I'm going to try and move on. Great question. So what's the duration and frequency? So that varied here. It's not the exact same thing in each study. But many of the mindfulness studies here are using what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is an eight-week course. It meets once a week. Um, Over eight weeks, it gives you homework, so you're trying to do daily practice. That's the intention. Um, Many of the mantra studies, based meditation studies, are using transcendental meditation, which is um, usually taught over a couple of days, and then the practice is do the meditation 20 minutes twice a day. Um, so I'm going it, to. It's fine to throw out a few questions as I'm going along. I want to make sure that um, any kind of key things are getting addressed. But I'm going to leave time at the end, so we're going to have time for for overall questions. So, um, so for some questions, just please note them down because we're going to have time at the end for for more questions. Going on to this next study, this is a, another kind of illustration of some of the effects of these kind of mindfulness interventions on our mental state. And I'm highlighting this in part because this is, I think, one of the just really well-done studies that's come out recently. So this is a study that was done by Willem Kaiken and colleagues. It was done in the U.K. Um, he is at the, the Oxford Center for Mindfulness. And this is a large study. They had over 300 people in it. And what they were addressing is a really kind of major mental health problem, which is people who have developed major depression often get better with treatment but are at high risk of relapsing and developing depression again. The question they were trying to answer is, what's the best way to prevent relapse of depression? Does it work better if you use medications? Or, and they were doing this as what's called a non-inferiority trial, do you get as good an effect if you take people off medication but give them something else? That something else is something called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So um, it incorporates actually a lot of what's in mindfulness-based stress reduction but also involves more work directly with depression and involves some pieces of cognitive therapy, which I'm not going to go into a lot, but is a little bit more standard psychotherapy for depression. So those are kind of woven together in this mindfulness based cognitive therapy course. And what this is showing on this y axis is what's the risk of what proportion of people have stayed relapse free have not had a recurrence of depression over time in the two different groups so the top group is the group that got the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy the blue line here is the group that stayed on medication this was a non-inferiority trial which means they were trying to make sure that this approach is as good as medication and you can see it's actually somewhat better Um, And their conclusion, this was not a really clearly statistically significant advantage, but it it was getting close. So what this is saying is that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is at least as good as medication, keeping people on medication for several years to prevent uh, relapse of depression, and it may be actually slightly better. So this is another kind of recent study, and I think the message from this is some of these kinds of approaches are effective, and they're, in this kind of example, probably as effective, possibly more effective than medication. So that's kind of the overall effect on things we can measure about, things like people's mood, depression, anxiety. I want to get into some of these pathways that we talked about earlier. So I'm going to look at cortisol and what's happening in the HPA axis, and I'm going to walk you through some of this data. So... Uh, This is a study from from, uh, Rosencrantz et al. This is really from Richard Davidson's group at University of Wisconsin. This is a recent study that was published a few years ago, and they took 49 people, and they randomized them to one of two groups. So one group um, got, uh, let's see, so this is in the green bars here. This is a health education program, the HEP group. It was meant to control for the amount of time people were spending in a group, and it was compared to people getting mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. And they did two things to look at the effects of these different groups on cortisol. So the first thing is the trior social stress test. So this is another group that's using this, and you can see what's happening over time. People are bumping up their cortisol, right, like we saw before. And the question is, is there a difference between what happens in response to the TRIER before and after you've had MBSR? And here, over time, these are the different groups. Um, this is pre-training, post-training, and uh, up here, and four-month follow-up. There's some difference. It's not really dramatic, but there is some difference and it turns out it's actually not really that different from the effects of what happens when people just get a health education program. And some of these are effects probably of just habituating to doing the TRIER. So you get a little bit less response when you're doing it after you've already done it before. So they didn't see a clear response here, a difference um, on the TRIER social stress test with cortisol responses. This is looking at another way of looking at cortisol, and this is what we call diurnal rhythm. So here we're not doing anything specific to stress people. We're just looking through the whole day at people's cortisol levels. And one of the things that's desirable, cortisol goes through changes during the day. You want cortisol to be high in the morning and drop down low in the evening. So that slope is actually a desirable thing. And essentially, within limits, the steeper that slope probably the better for for health outcomes. So here you see very little difference in the health education control group. There is actually some difference here where particularly um, by four months, this group has a steeper, the MBSR group has a steeper decline, and that was statistically significant. It was kind of borderline, but it was a statistically significant difference over time. So putting this together, this suggests that there are some effects um, when you're talking about cortisol and diurnal rhythm from this kind of training, but they may be modest. So here's another thing that they looked at. They looked at an inflammatory response. They used something called capsaicin, which is what's in hot peppers. It's an irritant. It gives you an inflammatory response if you put it on your skin. And what they found here was that the, um, the MBSR group here People first got kind of sensitized to this, so in the control group, they got a bigger inflammatory response after they got the second dose. Here, though, in the MBSR group, they didn't get that same increase, and that was, again, a, a significant difference. So it suggests that in this kind of inflammatory response, there might be some downregulation of the inflammation from the MBSR training. So that's kind of interesting, but you know, you, we don't usually put capsaicin on our skin to kind of see what happens. So the question is, in uh, kind of other re- immune responses, what happens? And I'm going to take you through a bunch of data that comes from one of our studies. It's called the SHINE study. And we randomized people who were overweight to one of two conditions. And I'm going to give you just kind of the brief rundown. They both had similar diet information, a Mediterranean diet information, We controlled for a lot of different things, but the big difference is we trained this group, the mindfulness-enhanced group, in mindful eating and mindfulness-based stress reduction and emotion management. In comparison, the other group got a lot of the same things, same number of sessions, They also um, got the same kind of diet information. They got a little extra nutrition information to kind of adjust, make sure that each group was getting a similar time in a group. They also learned some progressive muscle relaxation as another form of decreasing stress. Um, In both groups, we were looking for people who were overweight, and we gave them six months of the main intervention and then followed them for a total of 18 months. So one of the things we were hypothesizing based on some prior data, was that people who got the mindfulness-based enhancement would get better flu responses. So what we're looking for here is the immune system functioning better. This is a really great measure that you would want to get more responses, right, on a flu vaccine. And what we did see here was a slightly better rate of response, but it was really not clearly different from the control group. So we did not get a statistically significant difference. So this was different than our hypothesis. So let's look at another way, another issue, which we talked about the autonomic nervous system. So what are the effects of this kind of mindfulness training on the autonomic nervous system responses to stress? So I'm going to give you just a little more background on stress here. So we we like to often think of stress as a bad thing, right? Well Stress, I'm just going to say, is not all bad. If you try and live a completely stress-free life, um, you're really not living very much. Um, Stress is part of life. There also, though, can be more good stress here, uh, exemplified by this predator. It's not so good stress as when you're the prey, right? And it turns out that these elicit different kinds of stress responses. So... In this model, and this is developed um, in part by Wendy Mendez, who is another faculty member here, um, the kind of positive thing is uh, stress is uh, associated with approach or, or activated stress. It has elements of toughness and resilience. The, uh, the other kind of bad stress is more of a withdrawal-inhibited kind of stress, and it is more of a kind of defeat kind of response to stress. So um, what, stre- what, what influences this? Well, so what kind of stress response you get depends on how you're appraising this. And this is, again, something that's happening in your mind, right? So if you appraise a stressful situation like that animal of prey as a threat, in which the demands may increase, exceed what your resources are, you get a set of stress responses that include constriction of your blood vessels in your your periphery. So you get increased total peripheral resistance. That is probably a protective response if you might get wounded. A challenge response, though, is more what you want. For example, if you're going to be a sprinter and you're in the Olympics and you want to go out there and you want to do your very best – you get an increase in your cardiac efficiency. So one of the ways we measure that is an increase in cardiac output. So it turns out in the lab during this Trier social stress test, we can actually measure those responses. We put a whole bunch of monitors on people, and we get measures of these two different things, increases in cardiac output or decreases, and increases or decrease in your peripheral resistance. So that's, the again, are you clamping down your blood vessels? So here's what this looks like in our SHINE study. So I'm going to walk you through this. So um, in the green group here, this is our control group. The red group here, that is the group that got the mindfulness enhancements. And if you look here, this is the change in total peripheral resistance starting from baseline from the first measure This is a second TRIER social stress test after people have gotten all the training. And you can see here, on the second TRIER, there is a decrease in total peripheral resistance, so less of this threat response, whereas the other group is actually getting, the control group is getting more response, potentially because they actually know what they're in for and they're getting a little more tense. In contrast with cardiac output, again, this is the challenge physiologic response response. The mindfulness-enhanced group is having an increase in cardiac output. The control group is getting a decrease. So these are all statistically significant differences. So what it's suggesting here is if you remember looking at MBSR, at the, the prior study, we didn't see a, respo- a, a big improvement or change in cortisol levels. We, I'm not showing you the data here, but we got exactly the same kind of finding, no difference in cortisol effects. But we did see is this effect on the autonomic nervous system. And this is really significant because this immediate stress response is one of the ones that happens just right away, and it suggests that this is being affected by what's happening, what you're learning with these mindfulness skills. And it's helping people shift in this kind of stress condition, a job talk, for example, from this threat response, which is probably less desirable to a response that would be more desirable for most people which is this is a challenge i'm going to bring my best to it okay so finally i'm going to give you just a little bit on mindfulness and health behavior again this is from the the shine study and i'm going to give you a little background to what we're trying to look at so for people who are obese or overweight there's a lot of issues and what is driving obesity but um, one of the things here is that um, if you are engaged in what we call homeostatic eating you're eating just what you need to get the right number of calories for what you're burning, right? There's another form of eating, which is called hedonic eating, okay? (laughs) And it's what gets stimulated often, too often, by our current food environment, which is we're eating in response to all these reward drive signals um, from all these different really attractive-looking foods here. we're eating not because we need those calories for our energy balance but because we want to eat for the pleasure of it. And it turns out that there's a really complex interaction between homeostatic eating, which you need to maintain our energy balance, and hedonic eating. One of the things that actually regulates that there are a lot of factors but some of that we think is under executive control. You actually can make decisions when you see all those luscious pastries about whether you're going to reach out and eat them or not. And our, at least our hypothesis, our model here is that one of the things we can do with mindfulness-based interventions is increase this executive functioning by increasing our awareness of things like automatic eating behaviors, giving us just a pause, and this is one of the things we teach, before you start eating, so you can key into our hunger and satiety cues. How hungry are you really? And you can work more with stress eating. So those are all the kind of things where we think we can strengthen some of this executive functioning with mindfulness interventions in a way that might affect behavior. So what did we find? So here is the two groups. So this is the mindfulness group in blue, the standard control group in red, and this is what's happening with fasting glucose. So over time, Most people, as they age, this fasting glucose is going to go up, which is what's happening in the comparison group, whereas it's staying stable in the mindfulness group. And that, by the end of the study, ends up being a pretty strongly statistically significant difference. However, one of the key things we were looking at was differences in weight loss. And these are, again, the two groups. And the mindfulness group does look like they lost and maintained somewhat better weight loss here, but this was not a statistically significant difference. It was close, but not quite there. So we looked at more at this data. And we did this because as we were doing these um, classes, there was some concern about how some of the classes were going. There was one teacher who didn't get quite as good ratings from participants. So this, this is our rating from participants Um, This teacher got a lower score than these two teachers, and it ended up actually being a statistically significant difference in the ratings. And when we then analyzed the outcomes by group leader, what you see here is this is the teacher that didn't get as high ratings. There was a loss of weight, but then weight started coming back up, whereas there was either a stable or decreased weight over time in these other two teachers' groups. And it turns out this was statistically significant as a difference not only between teachers, but if we can look at these two teachers here, the B and C teachers who got better ratings compared to the control group, that was a statistically significant difference. So putting this all together, it suggested to us, and we're very cautious about this, this was not the initially planned analysis, something we did after we completed the study. So you have to be particularly careful with this, but suggests that these kind of interventions really are pretty dependent on who's teaching it, and that that can really influence the results. So this is one of the kind of next areas that we're trying to understand better. So finally, I'm going to, you know, as one last kind of, issue about health behavior and mindfulness. Um, I'm going to show you some data from an- another colleague. This is from Judd Brewer, um, who's at the Center for Mindfulness at UMass now. And what he looked at was using some of these same mindfulness approaches with smoking cessation to work with that craving for cigarettes. And what he showed here was a difference in quit rates between the group that got a standard smoking cessation program, which is right here in this kind of white bar, and the group that got the mindfulness enhancement in black. So you can see here, particularly at 17 weeks, over 30% of the mindfulness-enhanced smoking cessation group had stayed off smoking versus less than 10% of the group that just got the standard smoking cessation. Again, another kind of example where we think some of these mindfulness approaches may be helpful with health behaviors. So the question is, and I'm going to leave this for a lot of you to think about as you go through this whole course, is does the science live up to the hype? And I think one of the cautions here is um, that I think there are some very real effects, but we have to be careful of the hype here, and I'm saying this as a scientist and a meditation practitioner myself Um, these are i think potentially very potent tools on the one hand but they're also not magic cure-alls they're not perfect and one of the things these are just my thoughts to kind of take away from this is the effect size of some of these kinds of interventions may be modest they may be very real and important but modest One of the things that's important, I think, is that in contrast to medication, which I think may be great for all kinds of conditions, I prescribe lots of medications to my patients, but I'm also very aware that they have side effects. And this is actually something that, instead of having side effects, may have broader benefits than just what you're using the meditation practice for. But there are very, very real challenges, and I've just scratched the surface of that. So some of the challenges, for example, are how do you maintain the practice and benefits. Some of these studies didn't have very long follow-up. So that meta-analysis I showed you, that did not have long-term follow-up. And one of the questions is, how does this look six or 12 months later? The other kinds of questions, we've touched on this, but we need to know more about what conditions does meditation work best for. From the study I just showed you, the SHINE study, I've gotten really fascinated with this question, what makes an effective teacher? This is not like our medications where you just prescribe a pill and there's all this work that's done to make sure everyone is identical and it's got the right dose. This is something where you've got an intervention that is really dependent on the teacher And part of that art may be how you actually connect to the group that you're teaching, for example. So it's not like doing the exact same thing every time, maybe even the most effective way to do this kind of group. So that's a whole other question in this field. It's something that we're starting to try and do research on. Another question in the field right now is how do you strengthen the effects that are really working? And I think we need to understand that more Many of these interventions, like mindfulness-based stress reduction, has one package. That may or may not be the right package in certain conditions. So this is another big question in the field. Overall, I think one of the take-home messages here is that evidence-based mind-body interventions really are a work in progress. This is, I think, a really exciting, intriguing field. There's a lot of new data coming out every day, but we need more of that to move from what we know now to what we really need to know about how to make these interventions as effective as possible, as broadly available as possible, and um, as well tailored for different conditions as they can be. So with that, I want to just thank some of the people that I've been working with. Um, some of this data I'm showing you, this is very, very much a team effort. There's a wide team of people. In particular, some of the data I was showing you on the autonomic nervous system responses. Alyssa Apple, who was really the, a key colleague in the SHINE study, worked on that, um, along with Wendy Mendez, who I mentioned here. Um, there's a whole team of people, and uh, Sarah Corey, I mean, Patty Moran, uh, who really ran a lot of these studies, um, did a lot of the work to really implement the study day to day. Um, And this kind of work doesn't get done without funding. So this got funded from National Institute of Health grants. Um, One of the things at the OSHA Center that we're fortunate to have but is really vital to us is philanthropic funding that's used for some of the pilot work. This kind of work, as an example, would never have happened without some of the pilot funding that we got from philanthropic sources to do the preliminary work that put us in a position to get this grant funding. So I want to acknowledge all those kinds of uh, resources, support, and people who made some of the kind of work I was showing possible. Finally, I want to thank all of you for your attention, and I want to open this up for questions. Okay, so I start with you. Yeah. Yeah. Have you found uh, that these techniques are more effective in certain kinds of people? Or uh, in these tests that you've these experiments that you've done, uh, was there a control for who got into in an experiment and was there a wide variation? I, think, I would assume that some people are more receptive to this. Yeah. So so that's a great question. So the question is, you know, does this work better for some people than for others? So, um, so I think some of, the, some of our data suggests that your level of motivation in this kind of group does make a difference. Um, one of the things we did, though, that was really interesting in the SHINE study, I didn't go into this, but when people signed up for it, we never said this is going to have either a meditation mindfulness component or it's not. We just said we're comparing two different diet approaches. And we did that specifically because we didn't want people to feel like I'm signing up for this because I want the mindfulness approach. And if I don't get it, I've got the bum group and it's not going to work as well. So we wanted people to really come into it, give them their, give, give it their all. Um, one of the downsides of that is some people got into the mindfulness enhanced group and they said, what is this stuff? I didn't sign up. I just want to lose weight. I don't want to do these other things. So we expected some of that, but I think this works best if people actually are really motivated and want to apply themselves to this. So it did not work as well in our Shine day for people who said, this is really not for me. So there's some self-selection process there. Um, the other part of it, which I, I just comment on briefly, is I think some of these approaches do really have to be tailored probably not only to the condition, but maybe to the individual. And that's an area that really needs to get worked with more. Most of these kind of studies that I'm showing you, it's one size fits all. But that's one of the directions some of this research is going is how to kind of individualize this better. So it's yeah. Okay, so the question is, given this evidence that there are broad benefits and not a lot of bad effects, why aren't there more studies? Well, I think that is a great question. So one thing is, there actually are Quite a few studies, but there's a limited number of really well-done studies that have larger numbers of people, and the big reason there is that there's been limited funding for it. The major source of funding for these kind of studies here comes from the National Institute of Health. Specifically, um, the, the the institute there that does most of the funding of these studies is, is now called the National Center for, Com- for Complementary and Integrative Health (NCCIH). They have one of the smallest budgets of any center at the at the NIH, and they are constantly kind of under attack by people who think that we shouldn't be studying this in the first place. So there is. Limits on our on the funding that they have on on a federal level, and unlike, for example, pharmaceutical research, there is not some company that's going to make a billion dollars on the next wonder drug. Um, so uh, there's not you know that kind of funding that comes from industry. So it really, we're really dependent on both NIH funding and on philanthropic funding. Um it's it's one of the areas we'd love to see increased and where you can make your voice heard. Um, I, I think there's a chance to make some difference. Yeah, so the question is is this becoming part of yeah, is this becoming part of the healthcare system? It's definitely part of what I incorporate in my my practice now. Um, it, you know it, this is not something I would tell everyone to do. so there's some people where they're they're working with issues where I think something like mindfulness based stress reduction might be helpful this is becoming much more incorporated into our healthcare system kaiser as an example has programs that are part of the kaiser system now partly because of the demand for them and some of the evidence that they really make a difference one of the questions still is what the, how the reimbursement system works for it so yeah, so for the most part, these are not reimbursed as part of our standard health care. You have to pay out of pocket. So that is, I think, one of the barriers. One of the reasons to keep doing this research, in part, is to get the evidence base, to move that into something that we can prescribe, just like I prescribe medication. I can also prescribe something like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy instead of keeping people on antidepressant medications. Yeah, so and then. Okay. Are you able to teach this now in medical school and nursing school? Is this advanced to that level yet? Or? Yeah, so Shelley would answer this better than I do because she is really involved in the medical school curriculum, but this, all this is really becoming part of the medical school. It already is part of the medical school curriculum. It's becoming more part of the curriculum. So, um, so first, the difference—the question is the difference of the fasting glucose that I showed there. So that was after 18 months from the beginning of the the study. So, um, we we ran people through the groups with intensive intervention for six months. It then was 12 months after the end of those groups. The difference was very clearly statistically significant. It was about um, four to five milligrams per deciliter of glucose difference. That would be enough to be clinically significant. We estimated I think about a twenty percent decrease in your risk of developing diabetes with that so very you know what could be clinically significant it 's not on the other hand just a massive difference, but it, I think it was something that clearly could make a difference clinically it 's something that we would love to we 're going to try and do some more studies to really make sure that this is a solid finding but Um, it it did really suggest a decreased risk of going on and developing diabetes. Yeah, okay. So the question is, can you decrease the number of the green dots, those sympathetic nerve fibers that are going into the lymph node? So we don't fully know the answer to that, but the example there with the, the rhesus macaques was that when they were in a kind of healthy social environment, they had fewer of, they did not have a lot of sympathetic nervous system innervation going into the lymph node. So, the implication you could look at that two ways being in the social isolation increased it, but the other flip side of that, I think, is being in a, a kind of healthy, calming social situation decreased it. That's exactly the kind of questions that we need to look at more. Um, In in human studies, what's a little more difficult is most people don't really want to have their lymph node biopsy. I actually believe it or not, I'm doing studies where we biopsy lymph nodes, but it has to be a really committed volunteer. We're doing it for for other things in the HIV work. But, um, But there are other ways we can begin to look at it. And one of the possible implications of things like the stress responses that I'm showing you One of the implications is that may not be making a difference just for a few minutes, but that if that's happening repeatedly through the day, there may be responses that are actually changing your whole lymph node architecture like we saw there in the rhesus macaque study. So we need to know more about that. Uh, I think it's one of the kind of intriguing long-term questions. So with that, I want to just wrap this part up. Again, I'll be available for some more questions. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.